postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, guys? It is Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. Uh, So for this week, I actually want to share with you guys the opening sermon to a series I'm preaching at my local churches right now. Uh, So if you go to Vic Park Church and um, you are listening to this podcast, uh, I haven't preached this there yet. Um, (laughs) I preached it at June last week. So uh, look, uh, you know, if you want to get you want to get the early version. Uh, there you go. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm walking through this series of sermons for my local churches. Uh, we've been focusing on discipleship this year. And uh, in this particular sermon, what I want to do is begin to look at the gospel from a discipleship perspective, experiencing, celebrating, sharing the story of God's uh, presence and goodness in your life um, in, in, a, in a way where, you know, where you're not depending on a church or a pastor to do it for you, but where you're actually learning how to live that out and connect with others. So this is the introductory sermon where I talk about the power of storytelling, but uh, also in the meantime, um, take the opportunity to share my own story and, and what God's done in my life. Now, if you've heard my testimony before, uh, you might be surprised because I actually go, I dive in a little bit deeper than I think I ever have in this particular sermon, um, and I go at it from a different angle, and and that's I think that's one of the cool things I've discovered is uh, if if you if you ask me to share what God's done in my life, there's not one version of that. Like I can actually talk about the the grace of God and how it's impacted me from quite a few different angles. So this one is coming from um, my experience as an Adventist with legalism and perfectionism and all that sort of stuff. So that's the angle that I approached it at for this particular sermon. Um, so yeah, look guys, uh, I'm, I just wanna share this with you with the, with the intent that in the same way that I'm working to inspire my local churches to have this uh, discipleship approach to the gospel where they are celebrating and sharing the gospel in their own personal lives, their stories, what God has done for them. Um, I, I, I just wanna share that with you and, and hope that it can be a blessing for you as well in your own life as, as you seek to build God's kingdom. So I'm just going to transition here in a minute and uh, transition into the sermon. And then that's it. I won't be coming back uh, as soon as the sermon is done. Um, that'll be the end of the episode. But uh, I hope you guys have an awesome week. A big shout out to the patrons. Thank you guys so much for continuing to support the Story Church podcast. It makes such a big difference. Um, an update on the Bible study resource uh, it is still underway. Um, the designer that I'm working with is doing an overwhelmingly phenomenal job, guys. It's so cool. I'm excited. Um, it's been actually been tricky because we've been working on um, designing a Bible study resource that you can navigate spiritual life with a secular person. But there's a few things that I, I try to keep in balance. So number one uh, with this Bible study resource is keeping in balance um, the, the necessity of navigating scripture in a meaningful way with a secular person. So someone who's not Adventist and who doesn't operate according to our categories, uh, but at the same time, making a resource that pastors can actually use to prepare someone for baptism. Right. Um, and so that means ensuring that the series or the, the resource actually covers the kinds of things that we often like to cover uh, as someone prepares to to join the Adventist church. Um, and so that's what I do in this series is uh, looking at that, reframing it and approaching it in a way that it's meaningful for secular people, but that still explores our narrative in a very holistic way. Um, and so I've been using this now for five years and it's it's been awesome. It's been awesome, guys. I, I've really enjoyed uh, the experience I've had in connecting with people through this series. Uh, but as it gets closer to the release date, I will I will be advertising this and talking about it a lot because let me make something super duper duper clear here. There is no way on earth 
to create one Bible study resource that is going to be like a magical formula for all secular people. It doesn't exist. And I am 100%, you know, like conscious of the fact that this Bible study set is only going to do 10% of the work. All right, 10% of the work of, of you know, navigating spirituality and faith in a meaningful way with a secular person. The 90% that is missing is you. All right, so it's not, there's there's no magic bullet here, right? There's not like, oh, you know, like the, the, the postmodern whisperer wrote a book and then, you know, you use that and everyone's gonna come to Jesus. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, because secular culture is fragmented. And so the moment you make a central resource, you kind of have to make it so that it can be adapted to the to the fracturing of culture. Um, and so what that means is it's kind of like a baseline. It's a baseline that you can operate off of meaningfully, but it's never going to be 100% effective all by itself. Does not exist, all right? If, if someone tells you they've created a Bible study set that can work in every setting situation, um, in our fractured culture, do not believe them. It's a lie. All right. So 90% is going to depend on you as the sojourner, right? As the fellow traveler with the person that you're studying the Bible with and actually learning how to see the world from their perspective and learning how to share your story in a meaningful way. And if, if that's you, um, then make sure you head over to the storychurchproject.com um, and subscribe to get the free ebook. It's free. You, you subscribe and it comes straight to your email on how to study the Bible with postmoderns. All right. In that book, we begin the journey of turning you into a storyteller that can effectively share the gospel with someone who is seeking. And then when this Bible study resource gets released, then it'll be like that baseline that you can operate off of. But it's not a magic bullet, guys, all right? That doesn't exist. You're always going to have to equip yourself and through the Holy Spirit to be the person that can really navigate faith with secular culture today. I'm also gonna make some videos later on when I have time, maybe during the holidays, that will accompany that. Um, so that's, you know, coming in the future. Anyways, just thought I'd give you guys that update because, you know, everybody keeps asking me, when's the set coming out? I want the set. And I'm like, oh, you know, you gotta wait. Um, the other thing that we're doing, uh, just so that you're not surprised, when you get the set in your hands, you're gonna realize it's actually really, 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 really simple. So my aim was to make it elegant, but minimalistic. Uh, so, you know, staying away from lots of color and pictures and definitely staying away from stock photos. Oh my goodness, they're so bad. But anyways, um, staying away from lots of photos and color because the thing is, once you include that stuff within a resource, the price goes up. And uh, I wanted this to be affordable because I'm a pastor and we don't make a lot of money. And I would love for pastors to say, yes, I'm gonna get this and I'm gonna use this and I'm gonna encourage people I'm journeying with to get a copy for themselves. And if the thing costs like 30 bucks, come on, you know? So I wanna keep it as affordable as possible so that you can just enjoy it and, and not have to break the bank uh, to, to take this journey with someone. So that's just a few few little updates. Um, I think we have come up with something. Well, I say we, but I, the designer's been absolutely amazing. Um, Andrew's his name, and uh, I'll be promoting him as we get closer in um, releasing the uh, the thing. So so you guys, you know, those of you who have uh, graphic projects and stuff you want to do for the church, make sure you make sure you get a hold of this guy. He's awesome. But anyways, um, yeah, we've come up with something that I think is is minimalistic and clean and elegant. Um, so it's simple. It's not going to cost an arm and a leg to produce and, and to publish and to print. Um, but it's, but it's not simple in a like boring way. It's, it's simple in a clean sort of elegant way. So anyways, okay, man, I talked a lot. Um, keep your eye out for that. It's coming soon. It's coming soon. I'm stoked. I'm excited. So definitely keep your eyes out for that. Coming back to the topic of today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and transition to this sermon where I talk about the power of story, all right? What God has done in my life is my testimony. And I really wanna encourage you, if you don't know, or if you haven't never really sat down and tried to put it into words, what God has done in yours, that's where the power of sharing the kingdom lies. It doesn't lie in PhDs and theological formulas and really complex structures and systems and categorizations. It lies in a simple story of what God has done for you. All right, guys, I'll catch you next week.
Happy Sabbath, church. <laughs> there we go. That's awesome. I would just want to get a raise of hands who had a good night of sleep last night. Okay, okay, quite a few of you. Who had a terrible night of sleep last night? Okay, just a few of you. All right, we're on the same boat. Same boat there. I had a terrible night of sleep, guys. It was so bad. There was a... There was, there was a party on my block last night. I was not invited. It was an Australian party. So it was loud. Uh, but that wasn't the problem. I fell asleep anyway. And, um, and then we wake up to this banging. Loud banging. And a few minutes later... There's neighbors screaming at each other. And then the police show up. And then more police show up with dogs. And they're going around the neighborhood with these dogs. I was like, what is going on? I was trying to peek out the window. Like, you know, those Latin grandmas want to know what's going on in the neighborhood. I never really found out what was going on. Anyway, I fell asleep in about 2 in the morning. There's this group, I don't know how big it was, it sounded big, of just drunk people just screaming and yelling, and it sounded like they were about to get in a fist fight. Um, and that lasted for about 15 minutes. So I didn't sleep very well last night. Didn't sleep, didn't sleep very well, but it's, it's okay. I'm here, and we're going to get through this, amen? Amen. I'm excited this morning because we're going to be in the Bible. If you want, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the Bible in the book of Luke. And we're going to be there for a few weeks. I'm going to preach a series through a very popular parable that Jesus told. And it's found in the book of Luke, but... I wanted to do a little bit of a recap now that the churches have regathered and we're starting to get a sense of normalcy back, even though the restrictions were pushed to August, now phase five was pushed to August. Um, that's not so bad for us here because we're a smaller church, but a bigger church like Vic Park is a bit of a nightmare because you've got to split people up into rooms and you know, it's not fun. So we're going to have to do that for a few more weeks. We we're looking forward to it ending on the 18th. But with that said, praise the Lord, we're not in Victoria right now. We've got to keep them in prayer. That's really rough. So I wanted to do a bit of a recap because before all this stuff started, um, we were working through this year a, a series of sermons focused on discipleship. Discipleship. And we began by exploring how to study the Bible. Now, if you don't remember those, you can go on our website. They should be on there. You can look up those sermons. And really, the whole motivation or the whole premise behind this entire journey that we were going on this year is that as a pastor, I am of the belief that no one should depend on gurus or pastors for their spiritual development. Now, I haven't always been a pastor, so I understand the tendency sometimes, right? Like, you go to work, 6 o'clock in the morning, you're heading out there in traffic, you get back 7 o'clock at night, sometimes you got all these things to do, and then you, you, know, you get them all done, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, you do it again and again and again, and eventually it just becomes easier to outsource your spiritual development to somebody else. And say, Pastor, you just, just preach a good sermon. That's my spiritual, that's, that's my high for the week, right? Just, just give me something good, and, and then I can get back to my crazy busy life, because I don't have time, you know, to study all this stuff you study. So I understand that tendency. I haven't always been a pastor. I was a soldier. I was a personal trainer. Life can be pretty intense. 
But here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty, guys. The difficulty is that no matter how many sermons I preach, I can never preach a sermon that will address every single one of you. In fact, most of the time, when I sit down and I say, God, what, what do you want me to share? What do you want me to preach on this week? Uh, most of the time, he gives me something to share for one person in the room. And the rest of you just have to sort of go along for the journey, right? And, and so what I discovered also from my own personal experience is, if you're always waiting for the next sermon that's going to get you through the next season, you may never get through the next season. We have to learn to open the Bible and have spiritual roots in our own experience with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor is pointless. We can have a collaborative relationship. We can work together. But the point is, you're no longer dependent. You're no longer dependent on the next sermon to get you through. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is here. And he can be found here, no matter who you are or where you're from. So that was a bit of the motivation that launched us into this exploration of discipleship throughout this year. And so we talked about how to study the Bible. And over the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to talk about the gospel and how to experience it, how to share it. And how to celebrate it in your own personal life. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Marcus, I mean, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure everyone here gets the gospel. We may, maybe we can go and jump onto something else. But you would be surprised. I remember some years ago, I preached an evangelistic series in Georgia. I was in, uh, doing my externship and I was in Georgia. And we spent like three weeks there preaching almost every night. You can't really do that anymore, right? Nobody turns up. Um, but this was Georgia, this was a few years ago, and things were a little bit different. And um, I was staying at this house, and this family that I was staying with, there was an old man who was staying with them. He was probably about 85, 86 years old. And he was staying with them because his wife had passed away and he couldn't live alone. And they didn't, you know, the church didn't want him to end up in a nursing home. So they, they, they allowed him, you know, this couple said, hey, come live with us. Beautiful thing. Love it. And he was an awesome guy. He was just one of those old guys that just makes you laugh, has lots of stories, lots of experiences, lots of, you know, energy. And I used to love sitting with him and talking with him and just kicking back and, and, and sharing back and forth. And then one morning, I think it was the second week that I was there preaching, um, it, was, it was early in the morning. I'd, I'd gone out uh, for breakfast and he was sitting there eating his breakfast already and we got to talking. And I don't remember how, but the topic of heaven came up. And as soon as the topic of heaven came up, this, this guy who was usually bright and funny and fun to be around, his eyes fell to the ground and he whispered these words, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. And I remember sitting there thinking, this guy had been in church for like 50 years. And he doesn't know. He can't answer the most basic question of faith. And the most basic question of faith is not, am I going to heaven? The most basic question of faith is, does God want you? He couldn't answer that question. And I realized at that moment, and not only that one, there's so many stories. If I started telling the stories, we'd be here too long, okay? But it's amazing how often we can explain and extrapolate on some of the most complex themes of Scripture. But when it comes to, does God want you? We can't answer the question. So I want to invite you to go in, you're already in Luke, so turn to chapter 15, because I want to spend the next few sermons exploring how to experience, celebrate, and share the gospel in your personal life. I want this to be an experience for you in, in your life, 
personally, individually. Luke chapter 15 in verse 11, this is a parable of the lost son. And we all know this parable. We've heard a parable a thousand times. We've probably heard a lot of sermons on the parable too. But this parable unveils the beauty of the gospel in a remarkable way. And I want to just slow down and spend time unpacking it. We're going to take off from verse 11. But first, let me say a prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. For the opportunity, the privilege, and the joy that we have to just be here gathered this morning. And that we have this time to talk about you. To get into the Bible and hear your voice. And that's my prayer this morning, Lord. My prayer is that you would take me with my tired brain that didn't sleep last night and that you would manifest yourself through my weakness so that every single one of us here can hear your voice. Not mine, but yours, Lord. And that we can leave this place knowing that we have been in your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus, Jesus is telling a series of stories in, in Luke chapter 15. And, and, and when he gets to verse 11, he begins this popular story of, the, of this, this you know, prodigal son, lost son story. And, and he, begins, he begins like this. There was a man who had two sons. Now, I love this. I love this. In fact, I love this so much, I am not going to leave that sentence all morning. We're just going to talk about that tiny little sentence. Is that okay? Just that tiny little sentence. We'll do the rest later, all right? We've got a few, a few coming up. But he, here's why I love it. I love it because I am a theologian. Um, I love it because I just... I'm a, I'm a theology nerd. I mean, what can I say? You know, you give me a theology book, it'll be done <laughs> in a few days. But here's what I love about it, all right? When, when it comes to explaining salvation, when it comes to explaining the gospel, when it comes to explaining our connection with God, Jesus does it in a way that baffles me. And so, for example, you go to the uh, fundamental belief on the experience of salvation, right? And that's really, you, you probably struggle to read that. So I'm going to try and read it really quickly. You know, in, in infinite love and mercy, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Substitute an example. This saving faith comes through the divine power of the word and is the gift of God's grace. Through Christ, we are justified, adopted, Adopted as God's sons and daughters and delivered from the lordship of sin. Through the spirit we are born again and sanctified. The spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts. And we are given the power to live a holy life. Abiding in him, we become partakers of the divine nature and have the assurance of salvation now and in the judgment. If you're bored, it's okay. I understand. Um, and here's the thing. It's a wonderful statement. And as, just as soon as you can figure out what some of these terms mean, you can pretty much unpack what's being said there. Justification, substitute, transgression, partakers of divine nature. What does any of that mean, right? Jesus begins to explain the gospel, and I love it because this is what Jesus says. There was a man who had two sons. Am I the only one who thinks that's cool? See, Jesus, Jesus is not, I, put, I wrote it down here, and I like the way I wrote it, so I'm going to read it. All right, Jesus is not an abstract theologian or philosopher. He doesn't have a PowerPoint with charts and footnotes. He is a storyteller. Because truth is not abstract and it's not complicated. It is a living and tangible story. If you want to explain the mysteries of God, you don't need a PhD. What you need is a story. Not knocking PhDs, I'm, I'm, I'm chasing mine. But what you need, what you need is a story. What is your story? What is your once upon a time? 
people say, you know, and I've heard this all, all my years, Pastor, I'm, I'm too afraid to share my faith because I don't know enough. And, and my question is, enough of what? I don't know enough, Pastor. Enough of what? What, what is it that you need to know? I mean, did the Samaritan woman at the well know enough? What about the demoniac who had a demon cast out? Oh, let me rephrase that. Who had a legion of demons cast out of him. Grew up in a region with pigs. They weren't reading the Torah. Jesus says, go. Tell everyone what I've done for you. Jesus comes back to that same region sometime later after being kicked out and people are ready for him. That guy was an awesome evangelist. You think he knew everything? What about Peter the fisherman? In the book of Acts, it says that the religious leaders were amazed because these guys were unlearned. What about Mary, Magdalene, the prostitute? You think she knew enough? They didn't know enough. They weren't experts in doctrine. They weren't theological nerds. What they had was a story. And the tragedy of modern Christianity is we have in our churches people sitting in the pews who are doctrinal experts and theologically fine-tuned, but they don't have a story. What is your story? One of the things I've discovered from being connected with the culture is that the world today is actually done with religious know-it-alls. But you tell them how God rescued you from that addiction. You tell them how God delivered you from that violent relationship. You tell them how God healed your insecurities. You tell them how he restored your health and joy and how he gave you the love you were always searching for. You tell them a story and people will listen. And when you tell your story, people start to ask questions. Questions that you don't have the answers to. And all of a sudden, it's amazing. It's like a miracle, guys. All of a sudden, even though you're getting up at 6 a.m. and you're home at 7 p.m., all of a sudden, you're, you're sharing your story and people are asking you questions you don't have answers to. It, it, somehow, miraculously, in the midst of all that busyness, you start finding time to find the answer. Because, because it's no longer, you know, you going to a class somewhere or you setting aside 30 minutes you don't have. No, it's not about that anymore. The fact is, Andrew asked you a question and Susan asked you something and you're like, look, I got to get back to you because I don't know. And, and somehow, miraculously, you find a time and you start opening your Bible and you start searching. And you do that week one, week two, month four, month eight. Next thing you know, you're, you're a Bible expert. See, I always tell people, I, I didn't, 90% of what I know, I didn't learn in theology school. I didn't learn it in Sabbath school. I didn't learn it in sermons. I didn't learn it in Bible studies surrounded by people who think like me and dress like me and talk like me. I learned it from getting out there and sharing my story. And when I shared my story and people responded and they wanted to know more, I just had to figure it out. And I did that over and over again without even knowing it. And next thing you know, you wake up one morning and you realize, wow. I think I actually am starting to understand the Bible. See, the problem with us today is when we think of spiritual growth, when we think of discipleship, We don't think of getting involved. We think of going through a course. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking time to sit down and iron stuff out. Don't get me twisted. But that's generally how we picture spiritual growth. And so I love this picture. This comes from a book. I don't know what book it's in, but this is, uh, here it is. 
Jesus didn't make disciples this way. Why do we? I want you to look at the picture for a little while and let it sink in. Jesus didn't make disciples this way. You know how Jesus made disciples? He grabbed a group of 12 people who were unconverted, one of whom would betray him, and he gave them power, and he said, go. You ever notice that? When Jesus sends out the 70, and he gives them power, and he says, go, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Three and a half years later, he looks at Peter, who was one of the ones who went out, and he says to him, when you are converted, in other words, he hadn't been converted yet. See, Jesus discipled, not academically, but with life. You jump in, you get involved, you share your story. It's not an academic course with a syllabus, 1.1, 1.2, 2.1, 2.4. No, 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 it's life. And it all begins with a story. Your story, my story, my experience with the living God. And it goes something like this, to borrow from Jesus' framework here. A certain man went to church. And he looked around him. And he looked at the people around him in church and he thought to himself, look at all of these wannabe, wannabe Christians not taking God seriously, just playing church. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be faithful to God in every single way. Everybody else can be half-hearted, but not him. He was serious. No excuses. He was in this thing. That's how the story begins. Went through his house and started throwing away movies and music and, you know, all kinds of things. And changed his friend's circle and, 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 and began to live a very rigorous and strict. And every time he read something, he would go right up to it. And, 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 and you know, he, if, 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 if he found a commandment in scripture he wasn't keeping, he would start keeping it. And if he was reading through the testimonies and he found something he wasn't supposed to be doing, he would stop doing it. And every time he remembered a sin, he'd confess it right then and there because he was going to be pure everybody else could play around but not this guy until one day it hit him that for every sin he confessed he remembered three more that for every rule he committed to keep he found another 10 he wasn't keeping that for every sacrifice he made to be approved of God, he discovered 20 other sacrifices he wasn't making. It was like an endless rabbit trail. And just when he thought he'd arrived, God would move the marker, he would move the post and say, no, not yet. And then something began to happen in his life, an echo that started really softly and then grew louder and louder and louder to the point that it began to dominate his entire existence. And the echo was three simple words, never good enough. Church, that is my story. Never good enough. If 
If I, could, if, I, if I could do my biography, that's what I would title it. Never good enough. Let me tell you something. If you think that you are conservative, you don't know what the word means. If you think you're strict here this morning, you don't know the meaning of the term. I was the best. And I was the thorn on the pastor's side. Why? Because pastor isn't spiritual enough. Because pastor isn't committed enough. Because pastor isn't strict enough. But I was. I read more Ellen White than the elder, and I knew more verses than the Sabbath school teacher, and I preached more pointed sermons than the conference president. But beneath the facade of my impressive religiosity was this echo, you're not good enough. And no matter how hard I tried, guys, there was always something I wasn't doing that I had to do. No matter how many sermons I watched on how I should stop doing this and stop doing that, there was always another sermon about how I should also stop the other thing. It was never ending, never ending. Until one day that echo finally escaped my lips and I shook my fist at heaven and I said, you know what, God, I'll never be good enough for you. And I was angry at God, furious at this endless rabbit hole that he had me running through. I'll never be good enough for you. And the crazy thing is this, that moment of anger and frustration where all that venom just came out of me, I was in theology school. You think you're strict? You don't know the start of it. I remember when I first came to Australia and they gave me my first church and somebody said to me, it was the Armadale Church. Anybody ever been to the Armadale Church? Beautiful church down in Armadale. And somebody said to me, oh man, that church is really conservative, bro. You're going to have a hard time there. I showed up and I was like, what? This ain't conservative. See, I came to the point where I actually became what is termed passively suicidal. A person who is actively suicidal is a person who's made a plan to take their life. A person who is pa passively suicidal is, is the step before. It's a person who fantasizes about their life ending. I came to the point where I became passively suicidal. I would dream, I would hope that today was the day it was over. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I'm getting into some parts of my story that are a bit heavy. And one of the things that's important when we share our stories, and I, I want to encourage you guys because I know you guys are sharing a lot more testimonies and that's beautiful. Share, share, tell, tell those stories, guys. That's what it's all about. Um, but I also want to um, just encourage you guys that oftentimes, sometimes our stories can trigger uh, things that other people are going through or, or have been through as well. Um, and so I just want to pause for a moment just to say, you know, if there's anyone here who's struggling with mental health, who's struggling with, you know, suicide or anything like that, please get help. Please come talk to me. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. Um, you can also go to the um, whs.wa.gov.au where you can get all the numbers and stuff, things you can call. Do not go through that alone. All right. But I just want to make that clear. And I won't go into a lot of detail because that's another thing to be careful of. Um, you don't want to set people off. But I, I, I went through this season where I became really passively suicidal. I was at a Southern Adventist University. I was in theology school and I didn't want to live anymore. And of course, I didn't tell anybody. Uh, you know, I had to be faithful. Faithful people don't struggle with this stuff, right? That was a 
rhetorical question. By the way, I was being sarcastic. We do. But I believe that. I believe that. Oh, faithful people, we, 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 I ain't got time for this. You know, end times are upon us. I don't have time for this stuff. So I shoved it deep inside. But the thing I discovered, not in a book, but in life, is that when you take your pain and you shove it deep inside, eventually it starts to leak. It's like this pressure, you know, like a kettle. You boil the kettle, if you cover it, it's going to pop at some point. It starts to leak. And so I had all this pain and I shoved it deep inside. I was telling nobody, I told nobody about it because, you know, I had to be faithful and I had to be strong. And I was a Seventh-day Adventist and I had a, you know, a mission and I had to preach this thing. And, you know, I don't have time to go to a counselor and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. And, and so I shoved it inside, but it started leaking out. It began manifesting in anger. My, my temper got shorter. I would snap really easily. Depression began to take over. Anxiety, I had this, I lived with this perpetual knot in my stomach. It was there 24-7. Sometimes if you caught me when I wasn't thinking about it, I'd be sitting there with my hand clutching my stomach. Sometimes I'd catch myself like, oh, oh, oh put my hand down. Pretend I'm okay here. Anger, frustration, anxiety. My skin would get hot. My legs would go weak. My mind would race 100 miles an hour. I couldn't make that thing stop. And of course, you know, I told myself, oh, no, 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 don't worry. I'm just going to go pray. It's a giant myth. That if you have faith and if you pray enough, this stuff will go away. I would pray for up to three hours a day. It didn't go anywhere. If you have mental health struggles, don't believe the lie that you can just pray that thing away. That's not how it works. I would pray for up to three hours a day. Almost every day. Didn't go away. Instead, I just became angrier. And it got to the point where my mind was in such a dark place. 24-7. That by the time I lay in bed at night, I had nothing left. I would lay in bed at night and it's like I'd just run a marathon. Just pass out. I did this day after day after day. I never told anybody because... I was a Seventh-day Adventist. We're supposed to be strong, right? Well, my saving grace was that I had a wife who was a purebred Uzzy, which basically means she doesn't put up with stuff. <laughs> and she said to me, Marcus, you get help or we're through. So I go to this counselor. She drives me. I go to this counselor. I walk in. I'm like, nope. <laughs> I walked out. I sat in the car. It's like, no, I'm not doing it. And she said it again. She's like, you make an appointment or it's, I'm out of here. So I put my tail between my legs and walked back in and made this appointment with this counselor. One day during our sessions, she asked me this question that kind of, it was like she, it was like if I had a wound in my soul, she took her finger and just jabbed it. I didn't even know it was there. I hadn't categorized it. She said, Marcus, let me ask you a question. It was a super simple question. Do you feel safe? That was her question. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to be all hard. But it was like I was this little child that just wanted to cry. I didn't cry, but, you know, I wanted to. I felt that thing. And I'm thinking, you know, 
I'm, I'm an army veteran. I was a sergeant in the United States military. I led troops into combat zones. I did a whole tour in Iraq. I'm disciplined. I'm strong. I'm unmovable. And on top of this, I'm an Adventist. I know the truth. I don't need this other fluff. But as soon as those words left her lips, something inside me just broke. And I realized, I began to categorize it for the first time. And I realized, I don't feel safe anywhere I go. Because if I can never be good enough for God, who can I be good enough for? If I'm not safe in his arms, where am I safe? If God's sitting in heaven looking for any reason to keep me out, where can I go that I belong? How can I be safe? I don't remember what else we talked about that day, but I knew one thing. It was a humbling experience, and it was this. Whatever the truth is, I don't have it. I have a lot of doctrine, I have a lot of theology, but whatever the truth is, whatever God's trying to communicate to humanity, I've missed it. Because there's no way that this is what he wants. I knew I needed to put away my scholar hat and let Jesus do the work. So I started reading my Bible and I'd read those beautiful promises, whosoever believes in him. But I always had a one-word reply to every promise I found in Scripture about God's grace. One-word reply. Three-letter word. But. Whosoever believes in him. Yes, but. And then I read in Ephesians, you know, by grace you're saved through faith, not of works. Yeah, 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 but whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, that's true, but I always had a but. I was incapable of celebrating the goodness of God. I always had a but. I always had to qualify it. I always had to put a disclaimer on it. I was so afraid of cheap grace that I missed grace entirely. So one day, I went to this baby shower. It was a Sunday. I don't, I don't even remember whose baby shower it was. I just know I went to a baby shower at a church there in Chattanooga. And um, it was on a Sunday, and I walked in, and, you know, everybody's sitting in a circle. You know how they do in baby showers, sit in a circle. They play all those fun games. And I sat down by this table, this little tiny table there in the, in the hall, in the church hall. And on that table, there was this tiny little book, tiny little red book, Faith and Works by Ellen White. I'd never read it before. So I picked it up and I started flipping through it. And then I ran into this, this statement. On page 24, if you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man... And then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Man, I read that. I couldn't, I was like, what did I just read? So I read it again. See, all my life I've heard, you know, you're not saved by works. I knew that. I knew all the phrases. I knew all the, yeah, I get it. But when I saw that, I realized all these years I thought I was being faithful to Jesus. All these years I thought I was God's man. All these years I've been betraying Christ. All these years I thought I was so holy and so sanctified and so sacred and so strong I have been living a life of betrayal to what God has done. That everything that Christ accomplished, although, as though, rather, it's not enough, 
and I've got to grab my goodness and add it to the formula. This, I, first time it hit me, this is treachery in heaven. I kept reading. I was like, oh, snap, this book is crazy. <laughs> I kept reading. There was never a moment where the light bulb came on and an angel came from heaven and it was slow, it was gradual. But little by little, God began to, he began to pull away the self-dependence and the self-righteousness. And he began to help me realize that if I had any hope in this world, it was entirely centered in Jesus. And sometime later, I ran into what has become my favorite statement, also in the book Faith and Works, page 107. I'll read it little by little because it's a big one. So, The soul who sees Jesus by faith repudiates his own righteousness. It's not merely that the soul who sees Jesus by faith ignores his own righteousness. No, 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 no. Repudiates it. Rejects it. He sees himself as incomplete. And I read that because I was like, all those years I felt incomplete. And now for the first time I'm realizing I'm supposed to feel incomplete. That's part of the point. That's what grace is all about. That we are complete in him, not in ourselves, not in our health reform or dress reform, whatever other reform you want to call it. It's all in him. Sees himself as incomplete. His repentance insufficient. Oh, man, I read that. I was like, every time I repent, I, I, I remember three other things that, you know, this is never ending. <laughs> It's supposed to be insufficient. His strongest faith, but feebleness, his most costly sacrifice as meager. I used to feel like for every sacrifice I made for God, there were another 20 I wasn't making. And now I realize it's supposed to be meager. And he sinks in humility at the foot of the cross. That's the bit that I missed sinks in humility at the foot of the cross, recognizing that it's Jesus only. But a voice speaks to him from the oracles of God's words. In amazement, he hears the message, you are complete in him. You know how I read that? I read it this way, you are safe in him. God's not sitting in heaven with a light switch. You're doing good? Light switch on. You're saved. Oh, you made a mistake? Light switch off. You've lost your salvation until you confess, confess it. Then off. I'll flip it back on. No, 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 no. You're safe in him. And I also understood when I read that statement, I also understood this. You're wanted by God. God's eternal posture, and I came to learn this as I studied the Bible more, God's eternal posture is a sanctuary posture. That's why I talk about the sanctuary all the time. You guys thought I was just, you know, a nerd. No, I talk about the sanctuary all the time because the sanctuary represents God's desire to be with us, his eternal posture of wanting to be close. You are complete in him. And here's, here's, here's the bit that really, really got me. Now... All is at rest in the soul. Man, my soul needed some serious rest. All is at rest in the soul. No longer must he strive to find some worthiness in himself, some meritorious deed by which to gain the favor of God. That became my favorite statement in faith and works, 
followed by my favorite Bible verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly unblemished and blameless in his presence. It's like I stand before God as though I had never sinned because of Christ's physical body. Because of Christ's sacrifice, not mine. And that church is my story. It's not a doctoral dissertation, it's just a story. My story, my encounter with Him. And today I can stand before you and declare that all is at rest in my soul. Because I encountered a God who is for me, not against me. And the depression began to ease and the anxiety began to ease and the dark thoughts went away. And you know what the crazy thing is? When I found rest and peace and acceptance and safety in God's arms, I actually began to experience victory. See, because some people run around saying, hey, if you tell people they're safe in God's arms, then they're going to go on sinning. Nah, that's nonsense, man. Who told you that? Like, there might be a few bozos who want to go down that route. But most people, sincere people, the moment they encounter his grace, that's what transforms us. The law is never going to change you. Your strict behavior is never going to transform you. Your, 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 Your checklist of do's and don'ts is never going to replenish you. It's grace. That makes you new. So I no longer live with a checklist of do's and don'ts. Because I discovered that Jesus isn't interested in my moral finesse. He's interested in me. And once I discovered that, and I entered into a real relationship with him, everything changed. And the same can happen for you. So what's your story? Jesus tells a story as he begins. He wants to tell people about the process of redemption. He doesn't pull down a PowerPoint and get all technical. Instead, he tells a story. It's a story that we're going to unpack over the next few sermons where he unveils the heart of God for you and I. But I want to pause there today and ask again, what is your story? I didn't ask what is your doctrine. I didn't ask what is your theology. I didn't ask what is your denomination. I asked what is your story? What has God done in your life? I want to challenge you this week. You can even do this today or any time this week, get together with a few friends from church. Not a Bible study. Just share each other's stories. Just get together with a group of people. What's your story? Here's my story. Let's listen to her story. Just share your stories. And if you don't know what your story is, And I want to invite you to spend some special time with God this week and pray this prayer. Say, God, I want more than religion, more than rules, more than ethics. Give me a story with you. I want to close by quoting the words of a singer-songwriter, Jason Gray, in his song, More Like Falling in Love. He says this, give me rules, I will break them. Show me lines, I will cross them. I need more than a truth to believe. I need a truth that lives, moves, and breathes to sweep me off my feet.
Give me words, I'll misuse them. Obligations, I'll misplace them. Because all religion ever made of me was just a sinner with a stone tied to my feet. He closes with this. It has to be more like falling in love than something to believe in. More like losing my heart than giving my allegiance. Caught up, called out, come take a look at me now. It's like I'm falling. It's like I'm falling in love.